the hunt for alien life in the universe. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. We're on the hunt for aliens. NASA astrobiologists are scanning the skies for signs of life. But will extraterrestrials look like little green aliens from science fiction movies, books, or TV? We'll take a look at the efforts to find signs of life outside our universe with two scientists. First, NC State planetary scientist Paul Byrne brings us up to speed on the current methods to look for alien life on other worlds and what those life forms might look like. Then, NASA astrobiologist Lori Barge talks about the importance of habitability and why the search for alien life actually starts here on Earth. And later in the show, we'll talk with science fiction author Jeff Vandermeer about the evolution of aliens in fiction and how science fact has shaped our imaginative speculation about aliens. On a storytelling level or, or an imagination level, get beyond ourselves to really imagine what alien life might be out there. We're talking aliens this week on Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. It's one of the big questions. Are we alone in the universe? Scientists are scanning the skies for any signs of life with the hope that we might one day confirm we're not in this universe alone. So how are scientists doing this and what exactly are they looking for? For a crash course in the search for alien life, we're joined by Paul Byrne. He's an associate professor of planetary science at NC State University, and he kicks off the conversation explaining the methods to look for signs of extraterrestrial life. Right. So there's, a, there's a, several different paths we can take, and they all kind of work together. They're all complementary. One of them is uh, trying to understand what we mean when we say habitable environments. That's sort of the first thing that underpins our search for life. We, the view is that you know, there has to be an environment on or under or above a planetary surface that is deemed habitable to life as we know it. Now, before we go much further, I should say, right now, almost all of the work that the planetary science community does in terms of looking for life elsewhere uh, assumes that that life is basically going to be similar to how life operates on Earth. That doesn't mean that it necessarily looks like anything we have on Earth. It just means that it requires liquid water, that it needs an energy source or sources, and then it, it relies on organic, complex organic chemistry. That doesn't presuppose that there aren't other ways of doing things, but it, because we don't know what they are, whereas we have a whole natural laboratory here on Earth for us to study, it kind of makes sense that that's where we start. So when we talk about looking for habitable environments, we're talking about environments that are in, that can be inhabited by things on Earth, on other worlds, either today or in the past. So here's a few ways in which we do it. We have spacecraft missions that go to pl places like Mars, and we can see that although Mars doesn't have any habitable environment on the surface today, we know that in the distant geological past, it had flowing water. It probably had standing lakes. It may even have had small seas. So for example, you might know that NASA's Perseverance rover is on the way to the Red Planet right now, and it's going to get there next February. And it will touch down in Jezero Crater, which is where we think we see an ancient, essentially fossilized delta where uh, river systems were carrying sediments into a, a crater that was filled with water. That's the kind of location on Earth where we often have micro, uh, you know, microbiological uh, activity and microbial life. And it may be that that's the kind of place where life might have been present on Mars in the past. So that's one of the reasons the Perseverance rover is going there. And what about other worlds? Well, for example, with uh, exoplanetary science, we have telescopes that we point at other stars to look for planets around them. We want to understand, for example, which stars are in what we call the habitable zone. And it's a sort of shorthand, easy way of characterizing that radial distance from a star where liquid, where water would be liquid if it were 
on the surface of Earth, right? So if you were to somehow able to transport Earth to another star system, there is some radius, uh, some zone around each of these stars where with Earth's present day conditions, water would be stable as liquid on the surface, which is, again, what we think we need for habitability. So that's how exoplanetary scientists are trying to characterize uh, the search for life. Uh, we can go and understand, for example, extremophiles on Earth, right? So we know, for example, that almost everywhere on Earth that we have looked in the last few decades, we have found life in the deepest mines to the coldest ice sheets. And you may have seen a, a news report that came out over the weekend about how worms tens of thousands of years old were, were basically reanimated by Russian scientists and two of them began to feed. Understanding how resilient life on Earth can be helps us understand how resilient it might be generally. Maybe there are places where stuff isn't actively alive, but perhaps it's dormant. Are those conditions prevalent, say, in the Martian subsurface? Uh, you may have heard recently that there's been a potential discovery of phosphine in the Venus atmosphere. Uh, could that be a place where there's life? So understanding what kinds of conditions life can survive on Earth really helps you know, set the stage for what we might expect reasonably in other, in other parts of the, of the solar system and the universe. So all of those things together kind of, you know, they work hand in hand to try and understand what conditions do you need for an environment to be habitable? What kinds of conditions can life on Earth survive? And what kinds of signals or, or signatures would we look for, let's say, in the atmosphere uh, of a planet orbiting another star? All that together kind of forms this very complicated, multifaceted approach to actually understanding, uh, to searching for places that might be inhabited in the universe. Paul, you mentioned we're kind of going at this with the understanding that life may operate like us here on Earth, but right. there is the idea that it will probably not look like us here on right. Earth. <laughs> right. What do we think life will look like? That's a great question, and I, I think it's probably one of the fundamental questions we have, right, because we want to know, but I don't think we have any real way of telling. And, and the reason I think that is because if you look at the, the variety and diversity of life forms and shapes and types on Earth, I mean, there's some stuff we found in the deep sea that looks, you know, it's more alien than anything you see in a sci-fi movie. Uh, we have the most resilient kinds of microbial life, bacteria that exist on Earth. Even the, 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 the forms of complex animals we have or plants, they're so varied and, and adapted to their environment that even if the basis of, say, encoding genetic information and passing it on to subsequent generations, the way we use DNA for that process, uh, let's say even if DNA is used or some similar approach using other similar base pairs, let's say, uh, the actual appearance of these creatures Will, will presumably reflect the local conditions at, the given, at a given time on that planet, but also what the evolutionary history of that species or, or, or even that planet's biosphere itself has been. It's really interesting to note that we, we have good uh, evidence in the geological record that life has been present on Earth for at least 3.4 billion years. And I suspect, and I think a lot of geologists and planetary scientists generally suspect, life is probably much older on Earth. It's just the problem is we can't find evidence for it in the fossil record yet, definitively. Uh, but in that time, Earth has gone through some pretty dramatic changes. It's gone through huge changes in atmospheric composition, uh, changes in the amount of sunlight it receives, changes in the arrangement of continents and the chemistry and the acidity of the ocean. So even though this world has been inhabited for a very long time, those environmental conditions have changed. I mean, as they do naturally on any world over the billion-year timescale. And life on the planet has evolved uh, you know, to keep up with that. So the idea that we could reasonably predict what we might see to the planets, I think, I don't think we can, because we have no idea, even if they're made of the same stuff that we are, uh, we've no idea what kind of evolutionary selection pressures they've gone through, other than presumably they would operate in the same idea that evolution works on Earth, whereby 
things you know adapt to their environment and as the environment changes or if they don't they go extinct um but whether they be bipedal i mean it makes sense they might have legs or some sort of perambulatory mode but there are creatures on earth that move without legs they presumably will sense their environment uh, we know that the eye has evolved independently in the geological record many times so they might have something approaching eyes where they take in electromagnetic radiation some bandwidth but what they would look like or would they breathe oxygen or is there another compound they can breathe in that will allow chemical reactions to take place i have i don't think we we know at all which is really interesting We've been speaking with Paul Byrne. He's, he's an associate professor of planetary science at NC State University. Paul, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Brandon. My pleasure. Scientists are taking what we know about life here on Earth and using that information to search for similar habitats in the universe, with the understanding that life elsewhere likely lives in conditions that sustain life here on Earth. Are we there yet's Nelly Ontivero spoke with NASA astrobiologist Lori Barge about habitability and how looking at remote places here on Earth first is helping us find signs of life outside our planet. Scientists are working very hard on finding life outside of Earth. But when we talk about life, we also need to address the topic of habitability and see where life could emerge if the right conditions are given. And habitability is one of your areas of study, and part of your research focuses on recreating hydrothermal vents found in our oceans. Can you tell us a little bit about those vents um, and what do they have to do with the emergence of life on Earth? Sure. So my team studies how life could emerge in hydrothermal systems on early Earth, but we also look at how life can live in these systems. And these hydrothermal vents are very interesting because they exist right at the interface of water and rock where there's a lot of energy generated, just geochemical energy that is generated from that chemical reaction. And so there are gradients there, things like electron gradients and pH gradients. And there's also a lot of minerals that can act as catalysts for organic chemistry. So we do, we do a lot of experiments to simulate how these vents might grow in oceans that are very different from Earth's ocean today to understand what sort of organic chemistry might occur. But then we also want to look at how much energy these vents produce because these can be habitats for life that it happens on Earth today, life lives at hydrothermal vents, and this may have been happening throughout Earth history. So we want to understand, could this be a place where life could live on other worlds? What does life look in these hydrothermal vents? In hydrothermal vents, life is chemosynthetic, which means it takes chemical energy from the Earth, so using things like hydrogen or methane, and these microbes can harness energy from those chemical gradients from that hydrothermal vent fluid interfacing with seawater. And so by understanding how life currently lives in vents, it may also give us some insight into how life lived on the early earth. And then if hydrothermal vents were a primordial environment for life, then perhaps that could give us insight also into how metabolism began. Okay. And I see that that happens underwater and water is an important factor when we look at life on earth. But it's also fascinating to see that water outside our planet, um, you know, there's things, interesting things happening there. And scientists know of underground oceans in icy moons like Europa, and there's evidence of an Asian ocean in Mars. So could these oceans sustain the same hydrothermal vents that support 
multicellular life here on Earth. Yes, it is possible. It's a very interesting thought to imagine that there might be hydrothermal vents on other planets or other worlds, and these could include perhaps on ancient Mars when we think there was water on the surface. If we had that same kind of water-rock interaction, then maybe there were vents. And then for these are called ocean worlds, like Jupiter's moon Europa and Saturn's moon Enceladus. It's possible that if the ocean is in contact with a rocky seafloor, then maybe there could be hydrothermal vents there as well. What do you think would be needed to make sure or to prove that there is life in these distant oceans? Well, it's it's hard to comment on how one would actually find life in a vent on another world. That would re- that, that's going to require a lot of um, a lot of effort and engineering and technology. And even on Earth, exploring vents is a very difficult activity. It's hard to get robots down there, and it's hard to get samples back. And so, exploring oceans can be quite a challenge. And just like planets and these icy moons,、uh, nearby asteroids can also reveal a lot about the start of life. Um, we have this nearby asteroid called Bennu that has been around for 4.6 billion years, and on the surface there seems to be carbonate minerals, which scientists say could possibly come from these hydrothermal systems. So, should we get excited whenever we hear about the presence of these minerals or biosignatures like phosphine? Do they automatically mean life? Well, it's hard to say that anything would automatically mean life, but It is really interesting to hear about whenever there are minerals found on planets or, say, asteroids that indicate that there was water-rock interaction. That's very interesting, even if it doesn't necessarily mean life or a habitable environment, because it can teach us more about what water and rock chemistry could do on Earth. And this could imply things for, say, different origin of life environments, and also just to teach us how how what sort of organic chemistry might occur on other worlds, even if it never really led to life. You also study、uh, in the field of extremophiles. Could you tell us a little bit of how studying those organisms here might help us find life outside of our planet? Yes. So extremophiles are microbes that live in extreme conditions, and these can be any different type of extreme conditions. So things like super high salt content, or really high temperature, or maybe very high or low pH, and so. Understanding how these how these forms of life can survive in these environments and the different mechanisms they've evolved to thrive there, it can help us understand what what life might be capable of in general. So when we look at other planets, for example, we may see some environments that seem very extreme. And so by studying extreme life on Earth, we can try to understand whether life could be capable of living in such environments. And of course, there are also efforts to. Find intelligent life in our universe, but there are other efforts that focus more on studying minerals and biosignatures. And if we do find life in the next decades,、uh, what do you think that's going to look like? Do you think we'll be able to touch it or talk to it, or perhaps it'll it'll be something that we can just look at it through a microscope? Well, it's really hard to predict what might happen. So, I think that. If if we find something microbial, for example, then maybe we could look at it under a microscope. But also, it's possible that depending on what sort of signatures we have seen of that life, we may or may not be able to actually look at it, and we might find signatures of it in things like minerals or rocks or chemicals. So it really just depends on how things turn out and in which sort of environment we've been looking. 
Dr. Lori Barge is an astrobiologist. She works at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Still to come, how science fiction is shaping our expectations of science fact. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. If and when we do find life in the universe, it probably won't look like what we expect. Uh, pardon me again, Doc, but uh, just what did you mean by that crack about the Earth being gone? Oh, uh, I'm going to blow it up. It obstructs my view of Venus. So where did this idea of aliens like Marvin the Martian come from? To talk about the evolution of aliens in fiction, we're joined by Jeff Vandermeer. He's a New York Times bestselling author with works including the Southern Reach trilogy. He's also the co-editor of the Big Book of Science Fiction. Vandermeer kicks off the conversation looking back at the first instances of aliens in science fiction. Well, I think um, uh, you see them in the Golden Age magazines of the late 20s and early 30s uh, is probably uh, one of the, the key moments when this kind of thing happened. Before that, you, you see uh, sporadic things like uh, uh, these intellectual philosophical dream journeys that scientists did where they would use fiction uh, like in the 1600s to to basically try to prove a scientific theorem. So you would have people in first-person narrators, the scientists, pretending that they had, you know, dreamt of going to another planet. So that's kind of where it started, but it wasn't called science fiction at that time. And then in the early part of the century, you had a few things like uh, a vampire, uh, Vampires on Mars expedition uh, by a decadent-era uh, writer who's very obscure, obscure French writer, and it's only been recently translated into English. You had these early impulses of exploration, you of course have famous things like the 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 the, the moon uh, film, the early one. So you had the exploration, and then you eventually had uh, you know some kind of alien out there. Like in in one case I was talking about, it was it was actually vampires. Uh, but then you had the golden age of science fiction, and you had uh, you know a lot of speculation about life on Mars. Uh, you had a lot of early like uh, what you might call science fiction horror stories. Um, uh, you know there were these pulp magazines like Weird Fiction, and so a lot of times it would be uh, about either aliens coming to Earth and being in some way horrifying, or going to Mars and, and finding uh, life was was pretty horrifying there too. Uh, and then of course, you know, the, the classic uh, thing that came out of post-World War II uh, space exploration uh, fiction was were things like uh, Ray Bradbury's Mars Chronicles, where you got a more nuanced kind of almost um, sad, nostalgic feel for like this lost uh, race of Martians. And, and of course, those stories he actually started, I think, in the 40s. I mean, when, when would you say they went mainstream then? Um, you know, would it be well, when... I think, I think the Golden Age magazines kind of propelled it. And then, then uh, you know, there'd be early films like The Earth Stood Still and whatnot. I think that certainly, you know, was where it came from. And of course, a lot of the, the aliens early on were stand-ins for other things. During the Cold War, they were stand-ins for our conflict uh, with the Soviet Union in a way, you know, and, 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 and a lot of times they're reflections of our hopes and fears uh, and not necessarily, you know, an actual accurate feeling of what an alien might be. You know what I'm saying? It's like not biologically correct, just more or less, you know, uh, kind of commenting on something else, even if it was just subconscious on the author's part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that changed uh, to some degree in the 60s and 70s when you, you had people thinking more about the biology and you had things like uh, Frederick Pohl's uh, Beyond the Event Horizon um, Ichi Saga, 
where you encounter truly alien aliens. And I think that's one of the uh, challenges that, that, that science fiction writers have is if you're going to truly try to describe something alien, you, you have to kind of get outside of what it means to be human uh, to try to really portray that accurately or, you know, try to get to something that seems like it might be plausible, you know, or even just psychologically plausible. And, 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 and that, that's what I find exciting is, is those, those things where they truly are trying to extrapolate in an interesting way. I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, these aliens tended to be a stand-in for, you know, hopes and fears because, you know, one of the questions I have is, you know, you, you look back historically on how they're portrayed in in media and in fiction and they're these, you know, violent beings that are coming here to take over the planet. I mean, do they get a bad mm-hmm. rap because of that? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the that's the um, kind of binary, simplistic uh, thing that 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 um, defines a lot of the pulp era stories. Um, and I think that I think that the the more complex things that are not, you know, they're either here to, to <laughs> wipe us out or conquer us or or to kind of uplift us to some, you know, uh, utopia. I think that the things in between the the kind of difficult negotiations are are the the most interesting ones. How do you kind of see the idea of the alien evolving through science fiction? You mentioned briefly, um, you know, as kind of science evolves, you know, we start thinking a little bit differently about this. Um, but they're not these little green men anymore. Um, how has kind of the alien evolved through fiction? Well, I think that uh, the other thing that's evolved is who is surrounding the aliens. So, you know, they were, the, the, the field was very white and very uh, male dominated for a long time. And so that's one thing that changes too, is you see a lot more women writers, a lot more uh, writers of color coming into the field and, and that changes, you know, a lot of things about what's surrounding the alien. And then you add in the science uh, and, and even the things that we found out about our own planet. So, so I would also chart it in a weird way through animal behavior science, which is to say that I know as a science fiction writer, that's where I look to uh, first and, and um, what I, what I try to do is I try to extrapolate from that. So for example, they've made huge strides in, in, in studying uh, fairly alien organisms on earth, like uh, squid, fungus, and whatnot. So, so that's where I put my effort uh, personally into is extrapolating from that. Uh, and then thinking about uh, both on, on our planet and, and on other planets, um, what alien life would look like. And, and I think sometimes we forget that there's a lot of alien life on our planet. Um, there's a lot of really strange, beautifully strange organisms uh, that we don't even understand on this planet. So, so in some sense, I sometimes feel like we are the aliens come down to a planet we don't fully understand that we've then kind of settled on and, and, and live on without fully grasping the, the ecosystems here. And and that's one thing that, you know, in some of the fiction I'm thinking about writing uh, comes through as well, is when we actually go to other planets, what are what are our, our foundational assumptions? Like, we have a lot of talk about exoplanets, and oh, that'd be a great place to settle. But it's like, if there is an Earth-like planet, there are already going to be ecosystems and organisms uh, on those planets. Uh, and so it's very presumptuous of us to say, oh, that's just an empty place that we can we can settle down on. <laughs> We talk about like it's it's likely that you know the first kind of signs of of extraterrestrial life that that we identify are not going to look like us. They're not going to look like the right. little green men. They're going to be these you know little microscopic organisms are the first things mm-hmm. that we see. 
Do you think that science fiction is, is setting us up for disappointment? It's not going to meet these expectations that we've set. Well, I think science fiction is always best when it's not uh, trying to be predictive, but it's trying to capture a psychological truth. So in the instance that you're talking about, I think it matters a lot who the characters are, what the context is, as to whether there is a sense of wonder in a microscopic creature or not to begin with. And that really has to do with the skill of the writer in conveying this kind of situation and conveying the fact that there is a lot of awe in finding any kind of uh, life out uh, out beyond our Earth. Um, the other thing I would say is that, and I've repeatedly said this, like in the Southern Reach trilogy, it's explicitly stated that we are very limited in how we conceive of searching for extraterrestrial life. Uh, so we're, you know, mostly searching for extraterrestrial life through things like radio waves. Well, that's because we conceive of technology and civilization as proceeding from certain foundational assumptions about the technology that we have. Uh, and it's entirely possible that there are whole alien civilizations out there, space-faring ones, that communicate in completely different ways that have nothing to do with the way we communicate. And I'll bring it back to Earth and, and what that means, because, for example, right now our scientists are coming up with living filaments, like fungal-based filaments that conduct electricity. So you can imagine a future where we actually have electrical wires that are made of fungus, that are made of organic material. And so that's what I mean. There's all kinds of ways to get to civilization and to get into space as far as I'm concerned. And so I find, frankly, the, the, the way we're searching, we're literally searching for extraterrestrial life. And then sometimes the way it's portrayed in fiction is being very limiting. And, and it speaks again to how we have to, on a storytelling level or, or an imagination level, get beyond ourselves to really imagine what alien life might be out there. And, and finally, Jeff, you've, you've written a lot about um, strange creatures in, in your works. Um, <laughs> ideally, um, when, when we do make first contact, who are you hoping is, uh, is the one we're making contact with? What do you imagine that will be like? Well, I think I hope that we're making contact with an organism that is enough like our intelligence that we actually or our type of intelligence that we actually recognize it as intelligent. Because we have this issue right now on our earth where we you know, kill a lot of animals that are hyper intelligent just in a different way than us. And so my fear is we go to an, another planet and there's something we don't recognize as uh, intelligent at all. And it's actually the dominant life form and has very complex civilization and we wipe it out. That's really my main concern. Um, but in terms of what I hope for, I hope for an intelligent, uh, an, an alien life form that uh, has enough of a uh, human-like intelligence that we can communicate with it to some degree, but is also different enough in complex ways that we learn a lot from that interaction. And that may not sound very sexy, and it may not sound, you know, like very dramatic for a science fiction novel where a lot of stuff is uh, predicated on conflict. But in the real world, what you really want. <laughs> is a nuanced, wonderful uh, conversation and exchange of ideas rather than some kind of simplistic, you know, binary. Well, we've been speaking with wow. Jeff Vandermeer. He's a New York Times bestselling author with works including the Southern Reach trilogy. He's also the co-editor of the Big Book of Science Fiction. Jeff, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks very much for your questions. Well, that is going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at A-W-T-Y space. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet? podcast or shoot me an email. It's Are We There Yet? at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. 
Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.